the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Advocate is sponsored by Nick Phillips and is responsible for its content. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Now, tonight we're going to talk about something we've been missing for the last year, and that's flying commercial aviation. And uh, with us tonight, we're very pleased to have a, a national and internationally known expert in civil aviation, Mr. John Cox. John, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Good evening, Nick. Glad to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, my, my pleasure. Uh, aviation, you have been involved in aviation forever. Uh, you and I have known each other for many years. But I was wondering if you could share with us a little of your background, because I know you have been seen, uh, you're an NBC News consultant on aviation. We see you every time there's an aviation issue. Uh, you're on the Discovery Channel and the Smithsonian Channel talking about why airplanes crash, which is sort of an interesting thing for those of us who follow aviation. But tell us a little bit about your background. How, how long have you been involved in aviation? How, how did you first get interested in aviation? I, I learned to fly at a very young age. Uh, I soloed when I was 16 and uh, have been in aviation ever since. I just celebrated uh, 50 years in aviation uh, last December. So it, uh, it's been a part of my life, uh, the majority of it, actually. Um, I started uh, flying in, uh, in Alabama, my hometown, and managed to uh, procure a job as a co-pilot on a corporate airplane. Um, when I was 19 years old, and I've been flying professionally and been involved in it ever since. Now, you made a transition somewhere along the way, or maybe it's always been a part, uh, that aviation and aviation safety are always one and the same. But uh, you've become quite uh, an expert and spokesperson for aviation safety and explaining to the general public the the intricacies of aviation and flying and, and safety-type issues. How did you make that transition? In 1986, a friend of mine was a captain on a 737 that overran a runway in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I, I followed pretty closely the investigation and what all happened to him, and it uh, it piqued my interest. I've always had an interest in aviation safety, but watching him go through that, uh, it uh, it caused me to to really kind of focus on that. And so since 1986, uh, aviation safety and uh, the how to make things better uh, has been a, a primary focus over the, from 1989 to uh, 94. I, I was involved in the investigation of several uh, airliner accidents. And when you see things that have gone wrong, it really makes you quite passionate about aviation safety and, and promoting it and doing the things necessary to improve uh, the safety uh, of every passenger that gets on an airplane around the world. And so that um, in 2005, 
I left the airlines, uh, retired very early, and founded an aviation safety consulting firm. And we've been uh, working literally around the world ever since. Well, well, thank you for your service in aviation safety. It, it's so important that uh, when we, we talk about uh, airline pilots and, and flying airplanes, there's a certain glamour side to it that, wow, must be fun and fairly easy to fly an airliner. But on the other side of that cockpit door, you have hundreds of passengers whose lives are entrusted to the people up front, and that, that is quite a responsibility. And, and along those lines is that uh, getting 80% right is not good enough, or even 99%. You have to do all this stuff right constantly, without fail. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's what happens with regard to aviation safety here. We have been shut down, or at least seriously reduced in aviation and commercial air travel with the COVID-19 for a year. Uh, what, what, what is your take on that? Are we going to be able to come back easily, or is there going to be some hurdles we're going to have to jump to get back to where we were? I think you're going to see a slow, steady recovery. Uh, there, there's all the signs are now indicating that there's quite a pent-up demand for uh, air travel, both in leisure travel and in business. It appears the business travel is going to be a little slower in returning, but uh, increasingly you're seeing operators bring airline, airliners that have been in storage out uh, they're increasing their schedule. They're increasing the number of seats available. And the good news is they're filling them. So as we see the, the proliferation of vaccines, the more uh, increased number of people that feel comfortable traveling, uh, I think this demand will return. Uh, and it's, I think it's going to be pretty steady increase through the, uh, through the end of the year. When we're going to reach the 2019 values, that may take a little while longer, but uh, I think that you're going to see a steady increase uh, over the next several months to year, year and a half. So thinking in terms of uh, safety-type issues, two things that come to mind. Number one, you mentioned bringing aircraft out of storage. When an aircraft's been sitting around on a tarmac somewhere for a number of months without being operated, uh, have have they been doing ongoing maintenance type uh, procedures to keep these aircraft fresh and ready to come back into service, or do they have to like get them back into service with some stringent procedure? There's two types of storage. There's what they call short-term storage and long-term storage. The short-term storage is the engines are run every week, the airplanes are moved uh, so that the tires don't get flat spotted they're receiving pretty much constant care, uh, and they can be returned to service in a matter of days. The longer-term storage ones, uh, those, those take a lot longer, and they're very specific procedures that the manufacturers state to how to do that long-term storage, what type of preservative oil to put in the engines, uh, the same thing with hydraulic systems. And then when you're ready to bring the airplane out of long-term storage, what all has to be done, flushing and changing the hydraulic fluid, flushing and changing the engine oil, the uh, oil for the auxiliary power unit in the tail, changing the tires, 
the test flights to make sure that all the systems are functioning normally. And that takes uh, a period of several weeks for each airplane. So it's not something that happens overnight. And additionally, a number of operators have altered their fleet plans. And what I mean by that is their airplanes types that individual operators are not planning to operate post-COVID. So uh, those airplanes will not return. They're going to be sold or returned to the uh, lessors. So the fleets are going to look a little different uh, once as we get into the post-COVID regime. Well, what aircraft are in that category that uh, we're going to be seeing less of? Well, as an example, Delta made the determination that they're not going to fly their triple sevens. They they only had seven of them, and they were used for ultra long haul. And they have other airplanes that can do that job. So having a small fleet type is expensive and not necessarily as efficient as you might want. So they have either sold or in the process of selling. Uh, or returning those airplanes to the lessor. American Airlines uh, made that same determination with their uh, A330s. So, uh, and their their MD80s, for example, uh, they're out of the fleet now. They're, some of the older type of airplanes that are less fuel efficient uh, are, are being returned back to service. And the new generation airplanes, including the 737 MAX, uh, are being brought into service because they are more capable uh, than the airplanes they're replacing in fuel efficiency and in operational capability. Uh, speaking of the 737 Max from Boeing, uh, how is that looking? Does it look like it's going to come back in a healthy style and be incorporated back into the fleet? Are we seeing any early signs of people uh, accepting it? The 737 MAX is, every day, there's more of them now in service. They're being returned to service fairly frequently. And in most, well, in a significant part of the world, they are flying scheduled service. Uh, They, as expected, the airplane's performing very well. And uh, the the airlines that are operating it are enjoying the the benefits of having the MAX uh, on board. And it, it's a competitor for the A320 uh, Neo, and so these new generation, very fuel efficient airliners are reducing emissions. They're providing uh, new airplanes with a lot of capability to the passengers and to the operators. Well, it looks like we're heading out uh, and, and getting back into where we have been. I know with the vaccination program going so strongly in this country that uh, people are going to be going back. TSA, I guess, has been seeing more and more people coming through the security lines. But uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to nationally and internationally known aviation expert John Cox. You've seen him on NBC News and other uh, TV stations like um, Smithsonian and so forth. But in any event, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with John Cox in just a few moments. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight we're talking to John Cox, aviation expert. You've seen him on NBC News as a news consultant for aviation and on the cable channels for talking about aircraft and aircraft accidents. John, again, as always, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Nick. It's good to be here. Thank you. 
the uh, we're talking about the airlines and having the airline industry essentially shut down for the last year because of COVID-19. We talked about aircraft coming back into service and what they need to do with that. But uh, with regard to piloting skills, I know pilots who've been furloughed because of this are starting to come back. Uh, what what do they face as far as uh, sort of being out of practice and, and getting sort of ramped up to get back into the cockpit and fly hundreds of people around the country? Well, all the pilots that are returning will go through uh, both ground training and then flight simulator training so that they are, all those, those skills are, are sharpened back up from the time that they may have not been flying so that by the time they return to the flight decks that they're, they're well uh, equipped to handle anything that might happen. We're talking about very uh, professional pilots with a lot of experience. And so their ability to return to um, the, their work environment, the flight deck, uh, it, they'll, come up, they'll come up to speed very quickly. Well, that's, that's, that's good to know. From a standpoint of being a passenger, what would we notice about the return to the industry? We've been starting to go to things we, we have done for years, and uh, it's amazing how measuring uh, the passage of one year in the rearview mirror, it doesn't seem that long. I, I'm assuming when we start going back to flying again, it's going to seem like we haven't missed a beat. Are there any things we should watch out for or, or look for because of COVID or any changes over the last year? I think the thing that you're going to see is the the turnaround times at the gate for the airplanes will be a little bit longer, uh, and that's so that the cleaning and sanitization um, can continue. I don't see that changing for quite some time uh, going forward. So I don't think you're going to see these 20- and 30-minute turnarounds that the airlines used to do. I think that the the Passengers, probably the best thing they can do is be patient. Um, it, it, the fact that the loading and uh, disembarkation processes, they're going to continue to take a little bit longer. And the frenetic pace that we had in 2019 of hurry up, get on the airplane, hurry up, get off the airplane, I, I think with COVID, with the increased social distance, it's going to be with us a while. Uh, I think that it's just going to take some patience on everyone's part so that we begin to move the, the thousands upon thousands of passengers daily, and that it, it's just going to require a little bit of give and take for all of us. I think we're all sort of uh, in, into the mode of being respectful of COVID. Uh, again, that, that year is such a, a big number. Uh, when people get on airplanes, I, I, I heard that airplane boarding has changed from the standpoint that now maybe a tip for airline passengers is to, if you're sitting near the front of the aircraft, let everybody else get on get on last. You don't need to get on first and sit there and having everybody walk by you. And masking is still required, I assume, on, uh, on yes. all flights. Yes. Is, is that accurate? Yes. That, that's correct. Masking is going to be with us uh, a good while, and that's a federal requirement. It's not something you can argue with the flight attendants about. It's federal law. So, uh, the, and, and I think rightfully so, the FAA has taken a, a pretty stiff stance on mask compliance uh, and that 
failure to comply will result in you, uh, a passenger being removed from the airplane, uh, facing significant civil fines or even uh, being arrested. I uh, recall hearing a story of someone who had that kind of problem, and not only were they removed from the aircraft uh, and fined, but they were put on a no-fly list. Uh, Is there such a thing? Oh, yes. There's definitely a no-fly list. The the people who have demonstrated an unwillingness to comply with the mask provisions, they are prevented from being able to purchase a ticket and get on an airplane, and there's a a list that is several hundreds long that each of the airlines have. Um, and so, and this mandate is going to continue for quite some time. So the, those people who believe that, well, it's not that big a deal. I just won't wear my mask and they'll let me buy with it. That is not the case uh, in today, nor is it going to be in the future. So I would encourage everyone wear the mask, participate in, um, the protective steps that, Aviation is taken trying to keep everyone safe. Well, yeah, we, I don't know how many times we use the term safety in our discussion today, but uh, safety is, is what flying is all about. It, it's still a dramatic thing to get into an airplane, fly up to 35,000 feet at hundreds of miles an hour, and get to where you're going in hours. Since you've been, you're so intimately involved with the aviation industry, how does it look to you from an economic standpoint? Uh, are, are we going to make it through here without many many bumps and bruises? I, I think economically we will make it through. We, we have seen the loss of several airlines around the world that were not able to weather it. And we're seeing some that are, that are struggling to get through, uh, particularly on the international front. Uh, I think the legacy airlines are going to be uh, financially sound. Uh, and they will weather it. This has been a hard hit for the industry worldwide, and economically it's going to take years to recover the financial strength that the airlines had before uh, this pandemic hit. So from an economic standpoint going forward, uh, I think that the airlines are going to be conservative, but they also recognize that the investment in safety is absolutely mandatory because what we can't have is a decrease in the safety net uh, of commercial aviation coming out of COVID. And every airline executive that I have talked to recognizes that fact. So my sense is that they will find that balance to maintain economic strength without an erosion uh, of the safety net. Well, that is so so very important. Uh, are you aware of any polls or any sense of uh, how the confidence level of the public is with regard to continued airline safety? I know before the COVID hit, man, uh, getting on an aircraft was just so incredibly routine. People were, as a general rule, very confident getting an aircraft. Do, do we have that same confidence level now, do you think, as people are getting back to flying and aircraft are being put back online and pilots are being called back from furlough? I think we do. The areas of concern that, that we hear right now are, are basically twofold. One is the concern about COVID uh, and the cleanliness of the airplanes and secondly, particularly with the 737 MAX, those are the two things that, that I hear the most, uh, most 
often as passenger concerns. I, I think that the the industry has proven itself to be so safe that the the idea of going to the airport, getting on an airplane, and going to a destination, it's the safest form of transportation ever designed by mankind. And there's a good confidence underneath that 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 will continue. The individual issues, COVID, we will get through it. It will be something in our past at, at a point. And I think the 737 MAX, as it returns into service and flies thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours, uh, hundreds of thousands of hours, that proving itself in service will reduce the, the concern about that particular airframe. So uh, I, I think the future is bright. Uh, the the globalization of our economies worldwide, it, it says that we are going to need fast transportation, jet transportation, as far into the future as we can see, and, and, and to grow more as we grow more interdependent on each other and each other's economy, the ability to to go and be in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in Australia, all of those places, that's how business works today. And the the inclusion now of virtuals, uh, meetings and things, it's going to have an impact, but there's still nothing like face-to-face. And so I think, I think you'll see um, a confidence, a continued confidence in aviation. Well, we're all strapped with that pent-up need to get back and start traveling and to return to where we were back in 2019. But uh, I'd like to thank John Cox. Thank you so very much. We'll be watching you, uh, as always, on TV with your expertise on what's going on with aviation safety. John, thank you so much. My pleasure, Nick. It was a, ple- it was, uh, a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for the invitation. My, my pleasure, likewise. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Okay, John, thank you so very much. Great great chatting with you. We're, uh, we'll stay in touch and see what other aviation things come up. Uh, let, let us know if there's anything else we can do to help out from a legal standpoint with uh, any information or background you need. Very good. I appreciate it, Nick. And uh, thanks. This was this was fun. I enjoyed it, and it's a good interview. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, great job. I, I think we want everybody to feel safe in going back uh, to aviation, back to civil flying and commercial airlines. And uh, I think saying something positive and reassuring is just what we needed. So I appreciate it much. So anyway, Absolutely. I know you're in California. You're you're earlier. You know, I don't know if you're going to go back and go to rest, but uh, you take your you take time. <laughs> we'll, we'll be no. in touch, John. Very good. good Super. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks, John. Bye bye. And now back to the advocate with your host Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of the Advocate. In the next two segments of the Advocate, we're going to talk to Aldo Filippelli, a de- deputy registrar with the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and we're going to uh, try to demystify some of the things that are going on in Columbus and uh, for us with our operators' permits. Aldo, thank you for joining us. Nick, it's a pleasure to be on your program, being on the Advocate. 
Uh, it's an honor to educate your listeners. You do a wonderful job in bringing informative information to our public and our community. And thank you very much for the wonderful invitation to be a part of this excellent program. We truly appreciate it. Well, well thank you so much, Aldo. And I know I appreciate your work and sharing with us what's going on with regard to our driver's licenses. Uh, the the first, uh, well, first off, you're a deputy registrar, and for people who don't know what deputy registrars are, if you can give us a little bit of background, what, what is it you do and what services do you perform? Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, I am a deputy registrar for 23 years. I am also president of the Ohio Deputy Registrars Association, uh, serving that position for 10 years. What we do as deputy registrars, we service the public in providing their driver's licenses, vehicle registrations, ID cards, uh, reinstatement functions, uh, anything that deals with motor vehicles. We also are an avenue where you could register to vote. And we know the critical importance of voting and how voting does make a major difference. So as deputy registrars, we are truly, truly honored to service the public. Uh, we are very, very fortunate of uh, the situation that had taken place with COVID and being shut down for a few months on how well our public reacted and how well our public was educated in allowing us the opportunity to service them when we reopen. What's really unique about us here at the state of Ohio, we were able to service many of our customers within a two-hour time frame, whereas other states are having very difficult time in providing that type of service. You'll hear horror stories of some states take a couple days to uh, get them registered. Some states are doing um, basically appointments two, three weeks out. But the wonderful job of our leadership, our administration, our staff have really done an amazing job in servicing the public. And for all of us, we'd like to thank the public for your understanding of this situation and really adjusting to us. Uh, so one of the areas that we really want to focus on is in regards to the new compliant driver's license. Originally, the license was going to take effect for TSA travel on October 1st, 2020. After the COVID pandemic and being shut down, it was extended to October 1st of 2021 of this year. And what that means to all of your listeners is that if your license does not have the special compliance designation on it or a star on it, you will need to bring a passport or a passport card to aboard an airplane or to walk into a federal building. However, if you like to apply for the compliant license, there are several steps that you need to follow, and there are several items that you need to be made aware of in order to avoid any type of disruption during this process. That, I heard that could be a hassle for somebody who shows up at the uh, BMV office and they want to get their uh, compliant uh, operator's license and they don't bring the right stuff. Uh, what do you have to bring with you to, to go in, even assuming you have a license and all your in information's in the system and it's all the same? What more do you need to bring? 
great question, and I will break it up into four different parts. And these parts, each of each part is needed to bring into a license bureau in order to apply for the compliant license. The first area is you must prove your name. And I'll break it down on a male side and then on a female side. So on a male side, you need to have your original certified birth certificate or a valid passport or a valid passport card. One of those three documents will be needed. The key part is you need to make sure all the names match from your birth certificate to your valid passport. If there is a discrepancy there, you need to get that corrected. Now, on a female, they're going to also need to have the same type of document, valid passport or a valid passport card or a certified birth certificate. Now, here's the issue. Uh, if you are a female, naturally, uh, if you are not married, typically your birth certificate should match your passport. However, if you become married, you, odds are you may have changed your last name. So your birth certificate does not match your other documentation. So in order to follow through on the steps, Either you must have your passport with the correct name on it, or you need to bring in your certified birth certificate. Now, if you bring in your certified birth certificate, we need to have a connection, and that connection will be your marriage certificate. So, so many times we will have customers come in, they will bring in their certified birth certificate and also bring in their Social Security card. The issue that we have is that one does not match the other due to marriage. So we need to have that middle name or that link, such as a marriage certificate, to connect the two items. Now, on the flip side, we may have situations where someone decides to dissolve a marriage and change their name. Well, if that's the case, you need to make sure that you bring in your divorce decree to match your Social Security number to your divorce decree, to your uh, certified birth certificate. So that's the number one critical step right off the bat. So if you have those appropriate documentation, that's step number one. Step number two is that you must prove your Social Security number. And there's two ways of doing that. You must either bring in your original Social Security card or your most recent W-2. Here's the issue that we see many, many times. Uh, and there's two issues. On your W-2, you may have only four uh, of the last Social Security numbers being displayed on your W-2. That is not acceptable. It needs to be the full Social Security number. And then the other issue that we see with W-2s is that we may see something coming in at 2019. It must be current. What I mean by current within the previous year that you're using for taxes. So we're now in the year 2021. So a 2020, uh, 2020 W-2 would be very acceptable. Uh, and on that, we need to, again, make sure that the Social Security number matches either the valid passport, passport card, or certified birth certificate. If it does not, Again, you need to have that missing documentation in between, whether it's a marriage certificate, whether it's a divorce decree, 
whether it's even a legal name change to connect the dots. If you have all that and they are original, then we're ready to go to the final step. And believe well, before we leave, before step, before we leave, before we leave too, uh, what about mm-hmm. people who are self-employed and do not receive W-2s? They file tax returns, though. They also have either a K-1 or a 1099 or an IRS tax form that would show their Social Security number on it, and that would be you know, acceptable for us to use. Okay, so they could bring their, like, uh, their 1040 in, showing their name, Social Security number, and address and all of that. Correct. Okay. I'm glad we cleared that up. Everyone doesn't get a W-2. That's what I was concerned with. Okay, moving on to step number three. And this is the big one. You must prove your address. And believe it or not, we've have had a lot of issues with this. Now, in order to prove your address, you must use either a bank statement, uh, a credit card statement, uh, a credit card bill, utility bills. We cannot accept anything related to medical. No medical billing, no medical insurance due to HIPAA law. Many of our customers bring in many medical billing or many medical documents. And I'm sorry, even though we have your name on there, we cannot use it. So we have a lot of issues with that. Let me me interrupt for a moment because we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Aldo Filippelli, a, a deputy registrar for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and we're talking about how to get that compliant operator's license that we're all going to need if we plan to fly uh, by the end of October of this year. We'll be right back. We're talking to Aldo Filippelli. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't... Yes, it is. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Uh, tonight, we're still talking to Aldo Filippelli, a deputy registrar with the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and we're talking about uh, issues dealing with our operator's license, and we're talking now about getting that new compliant operator's license by the end of October. Aldo, as always, thank you for joining us. Nick, it's a pleasure to be on your program. We truly see the value of the program that you currently have and how you educate and inform your listeners. I know the last step they were talking about was in regards to proof of Ohio address in the Ohio right. compliant license process. And so I wanted to kind of dive into it a little bit more further to really make sure your listeners understand what we need to see in providing that type of proof. Uh, when we look at your utility bill, it is okay to have uh, a spouse, but it's important to have your name on that bill, too, uh, with, with the, the address on it. So many times we'll see a spouse's name on it without their name, and we have the correct address, but we cannot relate that documentation to that individual. So it is critical to have your name on it. If you do have your name on it, then that's an accessible document for us to use. Uh, also, in addition to that, Uh, with your other bills or with your other statements, uh, it needs to make sure that it's current. Uh, So many times you will see proof of address of documentations going back three, four, five years. That is, again, unacceptable. 
It has to be a documentation within the last six months for us to use. Because you need to remember that we are now mailing your credential to your home. And so we have to ensure that the information that we have and the addresses that we are provided match in order for you to receive that compliant license within two to three weeks. Uh, that is why, why, wouldn't, why, wouldn't the, why wouldn't the tax return work? The tax return will work to a point, but the issue that we have with tax returns is that anything that you could input for your own address could be used as a deterrent or something that could be fraudulently inputted. So we wanted to make sure that we have something concrete that's mailed to you that verifies that that is an address that you reside at and you are receiving mailings at that address. Now, if we receive an IRS statement from the IRS mailed to you, then that would be fine to use. Uh, but what we found is that the most documentation that do not provide any type of issues would be your, your current utility bill, your credit cards, your bank statements, uh, your vehicle registration that we issue to you, because we know that that's an address that you are receiving uh, mail currently. If there's a situation where all the bills are coming in the name of the husband, say, and the registration for the car is in the name of the husband, and, and the wife really isn't getting any bills coming in in her name, what, what do you do in that situation? I'm sure you run into that. That is a problem that we see all the time, and they need to provide some type of billing with their name on it. The way the rules are set by the federal government back from 9-11 situation specifically states that you must prove that individual's address. So that individual needs to either reach out to the bank and see if they have a bank statement or ask to be added to one of those type of documentations and then provide it to us. Or maybe they have a credit card where maybe they'll allow their spouse to be added on to that credit card. Uh, to have their names on it. But it's critical to make sure that their name is on those documentation in order to prove their address. Well, I'm glad we're able to talk about it now because I'm sure people come walking in thinking they have everything and uh, they find out they don't on this particular issue. And I would think it comes up maybe more with women uh, just because the nature of society having the bills in the name of the husband. A lot of women have their names on the bills, but uh, so the only alternative is for the, say, the, the, the wife to talk to somebody with one of the agencies they deal with, like a bank, and have them put their name on a, on a statement, I bet. Is that what we're saying? Correct. Or, you know, I'm sure if they receive something from Social Security, uh, Social Security statement, that would be fine for us to use. Uh, we would usually ask for them to bring many other documentations, and then we'll review it on a case-by-case -case basis, what we can accept, what we can't accept. But in general terms, if you have those documentations that I mentioned beforehand, you will not have any issues whatsoever. Well, very good. Let's hope it goes smoothly. Uh, other, oh, You said there were four things. These were three. Is there another well, what I usually do is with two proofs of address, those are the two items that I usually say one versus the other. Uh, and then the uh -huh. other was the mirror certificate. So all in all, the three, the, the steps that you need is to prove your 
your legal name, which is either going to be a birth certificate, social or birth certificate, passport, passport card. Uh, then you need to prove your social security number. Uh, you need either your original social security number, most recent W-2 or 1099 or K-1. And then you may need to bring in a divorce decree, legal name change documentation issued by the court or uh, a marriage certificate. And then finally, you'll need to provide two proofs of Ohio address that you're currently residing in. Two proofs, not just one. That's another. Correct. Coming in, coming in with one won't do it. Well, very good. So to go over the two things that catch everybody, I would assume, would be bring in two bills with your name on it matching your current address. And they have to be recent, you mentioned, within the last uh, six months? That is correct. You must have your most recent documentation. And the reason why, again, the rationale behind it is in regards to, to mailing. We are mailing your credentials. So we need to make sure that you are currently reside at that address. Uh, we cannot accept documentations two, three, four years out because there's really no evidence that you're currently residing at that address. You may have had it, that address at one time, moved, we're not sure of. So to avoid any type of discrepancy, we are focusing more on your most current documentation. Uh, a different question, people who don't fly at all, they just don't fly. Uh, and they don't go through TSA, do they need to have this uh, uh, compliant uh, operator's license? And if if they don't, uh, do they have to at some point get one? Great question. This is just an option to you. Uh, you have two options. You could renew your license as is, or you could ask for the credential TSA license. The difference between the two is that if you want to renew your license as is, the amount of documentation steps do not apply to you whatsoever. However, if you want the Ohio compliance credential, then those steps need to uh, apply to you. Uh, in regards to flying, if you have the normal Ohio driver's license without the Ohio credential compliant ID card or driver's license, then you must use either a passport or a passport card, or you can reach out to the TSA agent and ask for them what type of documentation they could use in regards to flying. So it's, it's strictly a flying thing. Will the state of Ohio use uh, this uh, compliant operator's license for its own purposes that uh, are not yet mandatory? As of n now, no. Uh, there's basically two options provided to our citizens of Ohio. You'll have either the compliant credential or the standard Ohio credential, and that option's up to you. It's related to your situation, and if you want to apply for the Ohio credential, we're following the federal guidelines in order to issue it to you. However, if it's not applicable to your situation, then you have the option to use the standard Ohio driver's license. Uh, at this time, there's no rules, no legislation that I'm aware of that would require you to have the Ohio compliant license. At this time, it's an option to you. And for flying purposes. Well, very good. Well, 
Uh, thanks for bringing this to a head so we know what's going on. And Again, we're talking about the compliant Ohio license that will have the star on it, and it will be usable when you go flying to show to the TSA for your positive identification. And you can get this uh, through your local um, BMV office, and in Aldo's case, that's in beautiful North Royalton, Ohio. So, uh, Aldo, thank you for joining us tonight and letting us know about the compliant license. Nick, thank you very much for having us on your program. We are always there at your service. Keep up the great work. We appreciate all that you do. Thank you. Soup. Thank you so much, Aldo. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Good night. In a dream or in my drifting days after the war, I found a tea room north of the Mozambique shore. One Persian carpet on the sandwood floor. Rubber-pointed slippers by the bamboo door On the wall a faded picture of a movie queen Torn from the pages of some ancient magazine Sleeping parrot, dreaming parrot dreams And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning And only my mind accompanied The Advocate is sponsored by Nick Phillips.